Well, there is uh, no doubt that we live in a, in a world in this day and age where every little dispute turns into a lawsuit. It's probably maybe a little bit more prevalent with our neighbors to the south, but we're not immune here in Canada either. But if you've ever driven around a little bit, as we happened to do just over a month ago down in the U.S., you'll really notice it. There are uh, billboards and ads for lawyers that are willing and eager to try your case all over the place. And if you've got a, a TV, you know that the reality television lineup is filled with shows taking people to court. I think the whole reality TV industry actually may have even started with that particular genre. Um, things like People's Court and, and Judge Judy and a whole bunch of other things like that now have, have spawned off of those shows. But here's just a little bit of a sampling of the sheer uh, craziness of where this fascination with lawsuits has gone. A woman went into a discount department store to buy a blender. She decided to take the bottom box from a stack of four blenders from an upper shelf, which was used to store the extra stock. You've all seen that in stores. You look up the shelf and there's a bunch of extra stock that doesn't really match what's on the bottom. But she saw some of the stuff way up high. And when she pulled out the bottom box, of course, the rest of the boxes fell. Well, she sued the store for not warning customers from taking stock from the upper shelf and for stacking the boxes so high. She claimed to sustain carpal tunnel syndrome and neck, shoulder, and back pain. Here's another one. In January 2000, Kathleen Robertson of Austin, Texas, was awarded $780,000 by a jury of her peers after breaking her ankle tripping over a toddler who was running amok inside a furniture store. The owners of the store were understandably surprised at the verdict, considering the misbehaving tyke was her own son. Sounds like a good plan if you want to make some money, I guess. <laughs> Trip over your son. <clears throat> Break your ankle. In October 1998, Terrence Dixon of Bristol, Pennsylvania, was exiting a house he finished robbing by way of the garage. He couldn't get the garage door to go up because the automatic door opener was malfunctioning. And then he couldn't get back into the house because the door connecting the house and the garage locked when he pulled it shut. Well, the family was on vacation, and so Mr. Dixon found himself locked in the garage for eight days. He subsisted on a case of Pepsi he found and, this is funny, a large bag of dry dog food. <laughs> this upset Mr. Dixon, and so he sued the homeowner's insurance, claiming the situation caused him undue mental anguish. And here's the kicker. The jury uh, agreed to the tune of a half a million dollars in change. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> in November 2000, a Mr. Grzynski purchased a brand new 32-foot motorhome. On his first trip home, having joined the freeway, he set, <laughs> this one, he set the cruise control at 70 miles per hour, and then he calmly left the driver's seat to go into the back and make himself a cup of coffee. <laughs> Not surprisingly, the motorhome left the freeway, crashed, and overturned. That might work in the prairies, actually. <laughs> Mr. Grzynski sued the maker of the motorhome 
for not advising him in the handbook that he couldn't actually do this. He was awarded $1.75 million plus a new motorhome. Oh, just a couple of more. Maybe just one more. A woman in Israel is suing a TV station and its weatherman, you know where this is going, for $1,000 after he predicted a sunny day and it rained. The woman claims the forecast caused her to leave home lightly dressed. And as a result, she caught the flu, missed four days of work, spent $38 on medication, and suffered stress. Just kind of a sampling there to make you think that hopefully maybe some of the same things I thought when I read these and by your reaction you did. That's crazy. It's ludicrous. What kind of people do that? Well, in case anyone needed to be convinced, we live in strange times and really nothing should surprise us anymore. I suppose it's all part of the prevailing thought that's out there these days where nothing is ever our own fault. It's always someone else's fault. Combine that with our Uh, materialistic, money-is-everything mindset, and that's where we get this sort of foolishness. It causes our mouths to drop. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to hit on something here that's just as ludicrous and just as absurd in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it has to do with lawsuits as well. And so follow along as I read... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What's ludicrous to Paul here is that professing Christians in the church of Corinth are taking each other to court. If you have a sense of disbelief at those cases that I read at the beginning, Paul finds this to to be even more unbelievable and more ludicrous. Notice in verse 1 that he's not surprised that there's the occasional dispute, calls it a grievance there between believers, although we saw a few weeks ago that this idea of uh, when those words against another come, it 
that is totally incompatible with the New Testament teaching on how we are to be in harmony with one another. And we rehearsed at that time many of the one another's that, that dot the entire New Testament. So it's bad enough that they have grievances against another. But what really gets his dander up here is the fact that they go to law. That's the way he says it here. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? This is almost inconceivable to Paul. How can a Christian church member go to the public court system to resolve a dispute with a fellow Christian church member? For Paul, this whole thing defies logic. It goes against the nature of the church that Christ purchased with his own blood. How dare you? To Paul, this is a bold, in-your-face challenge to God's design for the church, as many of the other things that we read about already in 1 Corinthians were. This is a daring act of rebellion against what Christ has accomplished in saving them. And you saw the implication there as I read verses 9 to 11. And so Paul brings this up to the church. He he goes right at them, and he really uh, chides the church here for having a huge disconnect, or at the very least, a huge misunderstanding of who God created the church to be. And I say misunderstanding because of the way Paul approaches them here. He he approaches them, you notice, with tons of questions. And three times in verses 2 and 3 and 9, he starts this question with, Do you not know? And the connotation there is that they should know better by now. Yet their actions betray the fact that they don't get it. Their actions are an outlandish example of missing the point. So in verses 1 to 6, we see a fundamental misunderstanding of their ability as believers. Again, the problem that Paul is addressing here is that people in the church are taking each other to court. Not only are there rivalries in the church, as we learned from chapters 1 to 4, and not only is there sexual immorality that they were refusing to deal with, as we learned last week from chapter 5, but they are handling their disputes in a totally unchristlike way. Now, just a little background here. Corinth, of course, is a city in the ancient uh, Roman Empire. It was influenced by the ancient Greek culture that came before the Roman Empire. And so it was a place that had little in common with our world, just in terms of what you might observe physically. But in terms of the underlying issues, the Western world in the 21st century is much the same as 1st century Corinth. And we saw that the one thing that's very similar is that both, in both cultures, everyone seems to be taking everyone to court. And so in first century Corinth, there was a fascination with civil litigation. Everyone felt like someone owed them something. But there was more to that culture, and actually I suppose it's somewhat the same here, in that there was a sort of hierarchy. The more resources you had, the better chance you had of winning a settlement. And so the higher classes were at an advantage. But one of the big concerns in that day was reputation. If you lost a court case, there was a sense of shame. You were looked down upon. Your, your status took a bit of a hit. And so the stakes were high, not only financially, but also in terms of what people would think of you. And so in a lot of ways, it was a, a dog-eat-dog world. And it made for lots of division and dissension. 
and it made for some corruption. So bribery was a, was a pretty common feature in those days when it came to these sorts of cases. But the problem was that this sort of thing was seeping into the church. So rather than stand against the culture and the corruption, here again, Paul gets a report that these Corinthian Christians are adopting the same sort of mentality. Rather than being different, they're just blending in. If you want to put it in the language of our series title, rather than standing apart from the world, they're acting just like the world. And rather than standing together as a unified church, working together for one purpose, they're fighting with each other. And it's one thing to have differences. But to air out that dirty laundry in front of a watching world, where everyone could see it out in the open, well, that's what was too much for Paul. It was unthinkable. It was audacious. It was ridiculous, and I mean that literally. It was ridiculous in that it left the church open to ridicule. People looking in from the outside would see this sort of stuff and think, huh, look at that. They say they're different. They say they've been transformed. They say they've been set apart. But just look at them. They're no different at all. Listen, church, I can't think of a whole lot that's worse than that kind of ridicule from outsiders. We say we've been redeemed. We say we're new creations. We say the old is gone and the new has come. But for the world, for the same people that we're trying to show that we're different, to see that we're really not any different, that should make us slither back in shame and then to repent. And that's exactly what Paul says down in verse 5. I say this to your shame. In that society, there was shame involved in losing court cases. And here Paul says the church should be ashamed because they're doing the exact same thing. So let's look at the basis of why they should be ashamed and why they should have known better. We see the issue in verse 1 is that when they have grievances with each other, they're going to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. If you look closely at that sentence, Paul isn't so much condemning them for going to law, although he is doing that too. He's condemning them because they're depending on the law of the unrighteous rather than, listen, rather than the law of the saints. For some unknown reason, they figured they'd go before a judge who's bound by unrighteous laws rather than the church who strives to live under God's laws. That was the issue. It's not that the judges were even unrighteous, although they may have been. It's that the law of the land does not take into account spiritual matters. The law of the land does not take into account spiritual matters. It has no category for spirituality or for holiness. It's not meant to do that. It can't do that. It can't even understand God's laws. Never mind enforce them. Yet this church passed right over God's laws and dealt with their disputes by depending on the unrighteous to decide their cases. The ones who are equipped, the ones who are capable of being able to deal with these sort of issues are the saints. The saints are able to evaluate and to assess and to hear cases using spiritual criteria. They know the word. They know how to divide the word and to discern the word and to interpret the word and to apply the word. In the words of back in chapter 2, verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. Because back in verse 14, they can understand the things of the Spirit of God. It's the saints 
who it says at the end of that chapter, have the mind of Christ, which is something that the unregenerate do not possess. I should make a small aside at this point, and just to say that the cases in 1 Corinthians 6, the ones that they say should be judged inside the church, is not talking about criminal cases. Even Paul, uh, from time to time, or at least one time, appealed to the Roman justice system. And our system can be used by both non-Christians and Christians. And so if a crime is suspected among those in the church, or if someone is accused of a crime, those are the times when the law of the land must be enforced and the authorities of the land need to become involved. But this here is talking about cases that fall into the category of disputes between two people or two parties in the church. And because verses 7 and 8 talk about being defrauded, there's some thought that this might be talking about financial issues or property issues. I don't think it needs to be limited to that, but just wanted to be sure to point out that there are times when the secular system needs to become involved. So just that caveat there. But Paul wants to make the point here that the saints are competent to judge disputes between, between believers. And he makes that point in verses 2 and 3 by pointing to the future. He says, since the saints will eventually judge the world, and since the saints, verse 3, will eventually judge angels, surely they're capable of judging cases between believers. Jerry Vines says, if we can sit on the Supreme Court, are we not able to handle justice in the fellowship of the saints? And so Paul says that they have a misunderstanding of their ability, a misunderstanding of their competence. Are you incompetent, he says, to try trivial cases? Don't you know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Implication, we are competent. We are able. For most kinds of disputes that come up between believers, the church is able to provide help and counsel. And it doesn't even have to come from pastors or elders. If you're a Christian, you have the ability to do this. You have a kind of grace and compassion and sense of divine justice and understanding of sin that the world cannot offer. Even the best judge. You have the Spirit of God resident in you. And you have God's Word. The first words in the book of Psalms says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, it goes on to say in verse 2. When you delight in God's word, you have the ability to settle disputes between believers. And say that again. When you delight in God's word, so only those who delight in God's word, you are able to settle disputes between believers believers. And if you're the one that's in a dispute with a fellow believer, you can be confident in going to someone that delights in God's word to help you with your dispute. Don't go to court. Go to the church. Within the church, you'll find all the necessary qualifications to settle that dispute. Now let me say again that there might be times when those in the church will, will need to go outside the local church to get particular expertise on a particular subject. But even in those cases, that should only come after the church has been approached, and then together with someone in the church, you seek out, and, and, and here's the limit on that, that you seek out only a fellow Christian brother or sister, whether it's a financial expert or a biblical counsel, counselor or a Christian mediator of some sort. 
And then even after that advice is, is gained, you should go back to the church to help you apply that advice into your situation and to, and to hold you accountable to work towards settling that dispute and bringing you back into harmony with each other. That's one of the reasons the church exists. To ensure there's mutual harmony and love between one another. And so Paul continues his rebuke, really his incredulity, in verse 4. If you have such cases, why do you bring them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. And then cue the sarcasm. Can't it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? You have to remember there the context that they're describing themselves always as being wise in the world. And so Paul says, is there no one among you wise enough to be able to do this? And then from sarcasm, he goes back to resignation and disappointment. Brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers? He's incredulous. And not utilizing the resources at their disposal to deal with disputes, they end up bringing them out before unbelievers. What does this say about the church? The message it sends out is that we're not any different. We're just the same as everyone else. When a dispute happens, instead of seeing how this affects the witness of the church, our priority starts to go towards revenge or in getting the money that's rightfully ours or in just plain proving ourselves to be right. The outside world looks at that and says, Look, they can't even get along with each other. They're just in it for themselves. What's so different about Christianity anyways? So not only is this a fundamental misunderstanding of how we can come together as a church, even in the midst of disputes, but it also sends a completely misguided, wrong message to the world. And that leads right into how we ought to respond in disputes. And this doesn't get any easier. <laughs> Leads right into the message we ought to be communicating to those who are watching and observing. You see it there in verses 7 and 8. Just read those again. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here's a fundamental alternative to our disputes. Paul starts by pointing out that the minute you go to court, you've already lost. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat from you. Usually you go to, the court, go to court with the intention of winning a decision in your favor, right? But you don't find out whether you've won or lost until you've made your case and then the judge comes to make his decision. But Paul is saying, no, no, when two Christians start the proceeding, they've both already lost. And you can add to that that the church loses and even the reputation of God himself takes a hit. This sort of thing does harm to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When two supposed Christians go before the unrighteous, unbelieving system of justice, what does that say about the name of Christ? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat from you. Everyone loses when you do that. The church... You, the name of Christ. So what's the alternative? Look at it. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
you say, I can't do that. I know I'm right. I have to vindicate myself. Paul is saying here, this is way better. This is the better alternative, Christian. Why? Well, for one, it's the way of our Lord, isn't it? 1 Peter 2.22, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then this, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. If anyone had a right to stand up for himself, certainly it was Jesus. If anyone had a reason to take people to court, it was Jesus. He could have taken sinners to court, he could have taken you to court, could have taken me to court, and there is no question who would win. He never sinned. We always sin. Yet, he bore our sins on a tree. In other words, he chose to rather suffer wrong. So when you choose to do that, you follow the way of Christ. You follow the way of the cross. And that is always the right choice. And it's especially the right thing to do when you could take a fellow believer to court or when a fellow believer takes you to court. Is it the easy thing to do? No. It wasn't the easy thing for Christ to suffer wrongly. But this is not about easy. This is not about revenge. This is not about who's right and wrong. This isn't about winning or losing. In the mind of God, just making the decision to pursue litigation, you lose. And verse 8 says that even retaliating is wrong. And Jesus adds to that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And when this involves two people in the church, the right choice is always to rather be wronged and to rather be defrauded. One writer says it's better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. So by making the hard choice to be wronged, you follow the way of the cross. You protect the reputation of the church to a watching world. And for yourself, you entrust yourself to God, allowing him to handle the outcome. I would think another benefit is that it would give you an unexplainable peace of mind, knowing that your desire to be shown to be personally vindicated was overruled by your desire to please the Lord, to uphold the reputation of Christ's church, and knowing that you acted in a way that matches who you are as a believer and as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's the final point that Paul makes in verses 9 to 11. Very quickly, and I say this just by way of conclusion, Paul's reason for including that catalog of sins there in verses 9 and 10, which is really a repetition and expansion of the list in chapter 5 that we learned about last week, is to point out that we should never stray too far from recalling the depths from which we have been rescued. And that recollection, that reminder for us would keep us from going back there. And so this is a fundamental reminder of your new life. And so after giving that, what I think is just a representative list of habitual uh, varieties, this is not just a lapse, something that happened once, but this is a, a lifestyle, a habitual lifestyle. And, and he lists there are varieties of rebellion, 
that will not allow them to inherit the kingdom of God. So after giving that list, in verse 11 he says, and such were some of you. And you could insert there, but you aren't that anymore. And then, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now we could spend a lot of time just on that one sentence and all the catalog of sins that were listed there earlier. Um, There's so much there on what God has done in saving a people to himself. And we're going to maybe touch on that a little bit next week again. But the reason that the sentence is there, the point here, is just to remind those Christians in Corinth and us Christians in Wetaskiwin that we have been cleaned up from our filthiness. We've been washed. That we've been uh, separated from our godless Uh, self-interested, revenge-seeking lifestyle. We've been sanctified and that we have been declared to be in a right relationship to God. We've been justified. And since all that's true, we can live differently. And if we're able to live differently, when it comes to disputes inside the family of God, we should be able to resolve our differences in a way that will glorify God and that will give testimony to the fact that we belong to him rather than to give the opposite testimony by taking each other to court. The message that gives is that you're, you're still living an unredeemed life if you're taking each other to court. That you will, you're living as one of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So my plea is to not do that. And I know in some situations it's not easy to resist going there. Don't go back there, is what he's saying. You haven't been saved for that. In fact, you've been saved from that. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You have been justified. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, How thankful we are that we have been washed and sanctified and justified. Because of your grace, we are not who we once were. And so we thank you for your great love. And we ask today that as we reflect on what you have done for us in Christ, that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of your calling. Whenever disputes come, I pray that you would remind us to be quick to settle those disputes, even if it means asking for help from those within the body. And in those times, Father, when there seems to be no solution, or when there is an unwillingness to work towards a solution, help us to follow the way of our Savior, and to rather be wronged than to retaliate, to rather be defrauded than to seek retribution. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us for that. We know we are weak in that area and we need your help. Our natural desire is to fight back, to take revenge. But your word reminds us that we need to leave leave vengeance to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as those that have been transformed by love, that have been transformed by grace, and that our responses would be shaped by how you have first loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.